It is a truism that mistaken identity leads to a mistaken response. When you don't know who somebody is, you will inevitably respond to them in the wrong way. Tony Blair, former Prime Minister of Great Britain, tells a story, an uh, instance of something along those lines in his own life uh, early on in his time as, as Prime Minister. Uh, there was a diplomatic reception at which he was attending. He found himself in line near the punch bowl, apparently, oddly enough, uh, in, in making small talk with this woman whose face seemed strangely familiar, but he couldn't quite seem to place who she was. And so there talking about this and this, you know, just kind of things going on in the room and this person and that person. And finally he's thinking, well, if I could just maybe ask her some sort of leading question that might jog my memory as to who this is. And so he just sort of fumbled out, so what do you do? And she said, well, I am Beatrix and I am still Queen of the Netherlands. That's what you call a faux pas in uh, diplomatic circles. Um, mistaken identity, gumming up, bumbling up our response. Uh, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. And Jesus would not have us do that with him. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn now with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, uh, we are pressing on through this series in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first of the four Gospels, the first of the books of the New Testament. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We are right about the halfway point in Matthew's Gospel. So we're at Matthew 14, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read on through verse 12. So Matthew 14, starting in verse 1, and reading on through verse 12. Hear now the word of God. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of the oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Well, we need to pray, so if you bow your heads with me now. Father, we... Uh, thank you for preserving this account of what took place there. A gruesome episode, to be sure. Um, we know, though, that you didn't record it just to uh, grab hold of our imaginations or our fascinations, but rather to grab hold of our minds and hearts, uh, that we would be walking in your ways, that we would see yet more of the gospel of the goodness of your love and mercy, uh, even in this, in this seemingly senseless, almost ludicrous death that we see here of John the Baptist. We ask that you would be merciful and give us eyes, ears with which to see and hear, and we pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so this past Monday, I'm finally going to say something about it, the total 
solar eclipse, um, you know, it, it was proof yet again that this planet on which we live is, as rightly been described, the privileged planet. Because when you think in terms of precision regarding timing and precision in terms of positioning, uh, we have, as no other planet in the solar system has, not only the opportunity to see such a thing, but the ability to stand on the surface of this planet and watch it. It's really quite extraordinary when you, when you think of the, the fine-tuning uh, involved in all of that, which then got me thinking just this past week that in terms of fine-tuning, yet again, some of you have heard me speak along these lines before, that because of all the variables in play, we just are not likely at all to ever find intelligent life out there anywhere because of all the variables, because of all the fine-tuning that's involved. And yet, of course, we're still waiting. We're still looking we're still wondering, we're still talking, and you wonder, well, what could settle the issue? You know, so we could just finally know and, and whether or not you know, there is anybody out there. Well, here's how it could be settled. If, in fact, a ship would come down, if a ship would come down and land in that field, in fact, and a little person would come out and say, hey, that thing's rather extraordinary, but that would settle it, wouldn't it? Then you'd know whether or not there's anybody up there. And that got me to thinking about the parallel here between not just is there anyone up there, but is there anyone in the ultimate sense out there? Our question's about God. Is there such a being? Does he exist? And how could we know? Well, the reality is he came down. The debate's over. He came down. In Jesus, God has drawn near. In Jesus, God has drawn near. Now, the implications of that are, I can't even begin to unpack that. We're going to do it a little bit here this morning, just guided by this particular passage. But two weeks ago, when we were last in, in this series in Matthew, we were looking at the uh, presumptuous response of the people of Nazareth to Jesus and how that points us to th th this warning lest we uh, fall into the same trap of being unwary of familiarity with the living God. We talked about that last week, and their presumptuousness in how they responded to Jesus. And here, with Herod, Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas, we see in, in his half-hearted response to Jesus, we see something of yet another warning, and that is this. We dare not take spiritual matters lightly. We dare not take spiritual matters lightly. Why? Because, again, as I said, through Christ, God has drawn near. Through Christ, God has drawn near. Now, Herod is a case study in all of this. Uh, some of you may recognize this is a very similar outline to what we were using three, uh, excuse me, two weeks ago. There's a reason for that. I'll come back to that later. But here's how we're going to look at this progressively in, in these three ways, moving through these three points. First, the, the problem... The problem of taking spiritual matters lightly. Moving from that to the danger of taking spiritual matters lightly. And then finally, the cure for taking spiritual matters lightly. So problem, danger, cure, progressively, needing to look at each one of those in, in turn. So here we go. First, the problem of taking spiritual matters uh, lightly. This is, I should just point out, this is Herod Antipas. I made a point of saying that earlier. This is not the same Herod that you may remember reading about earlier in Matthew's Gospel or in the early part of Luke's Gospel, 
around the time of Jesus' birth. That's a different Herod. That's Herod the Great. That's Herod Antipas' daddy. Okay? And the apple didn't fall, fall too far from the tree trunk uh, in this case. Uh, Herod Antipas is one of Herod the Great's several sons, one of several sons that the, the great empire, well, realm of Herod the Great was broken up uh, among his sons and Herod uh, Antipas. This Herod in Matthew 14 is one of them. He's ruling among two places, one of them being Galilee, where all of this is taking place. Basic summary of this text goes like this, verses 1 and 2. Herod Antipas' response to Jesus. Verses 3 through 12, the reason for that response, with a historical flashback of something that happened that's kind of driving this strange response of his, this almost bizarre response of his to this news of Jesus. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the name, excuse me, the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Well, there's something of a mixture of, of faith and superstition going on, of, of uh, biblical faith, but also pagan uh, superstition, uh, different ideas floating around there. There's a variety of factors in play. You can see it explicitly here in the text. It comes out implicitly if you just think about it, what's going on here behind the scenes. Uh, Herod is, is driven by grief and pain and sorrow, and guilt, and anger, and fear, and frustration. There's just a lot going on here. There's this, a variety of factors, a complex mix. When you think about it, it bears the marks of authenticity. You know, the complexity with which how we see him responding. It's like, well, you don't really make a whole lot of sense. Well, a lot of people don't make a whole lot of sense in terms of how they respond to anything, much less Jesus. Uh, the illogical nature of, of that. It, but it feels right, it sounds right, and it actually fits the historical record. Not surprisingly, because this is part of the historical record. It fits the rest of the historical record in terms of what we know of the players involved and the background context of, of, of so many of the things going on here. So that's Herod's response uh, to Jesus. It's complex. A variety of different things floating here. The reason for that, as I said, you see that, uh, this historical flashback, verses 3 through 12. I'm not going to read that again. I just, I do want to say this. I'm going to summarize it, and but by grafting in a little bit with what you read from, from Matthew, Mark speaks to this as well. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, also fills out some of the details of this very event. Believe it or not, and, and it's, it's rather interesting, some of the things, the, the additional insight and light that he sheds on all of this. So here's what we know is taking place. First you have G, uh, excuse me, John's, warning, John's warning to Herod. Here's what happens. So uh, Herod Antipas goes to Rome to visit his brother, Herod Philip I. Right, I know, it's a bunch of Herods. It's a title, actually. So Herod Antipas, this Herod, goes to Rome to visit his brother, who happens to be in Rome at the time, he falls in love, Herod Antipas falls in love with his brother Philip's wife, whose name is Herodias. You read of her here. They decide to divorce their respective spouses and get married. John, back in, in uh, Galilee, gets wind of this, is offended, and begins to publicly protest. Okay, So this is John's warning to Herod. John's warning to Herod leads to Herod's murder of John. John is locked up in the palace fortress of Machaerus. You can visit the ruins of that today. It's an archaeological site. 
It's east of the Dead Sea. That's where John is in prison. And it's interesting, Mark sheds some light on this in the, you know, just kind of, again, the complexity of what's going on here and the bentness of Herod's heart. Mark 6, if you want to turn there with me, this is the parallel account. He's emphasizing some slightly different things, each one of these gospel writers are. Mark 6, verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him, him being John in this case. Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. It's really rather puzzling, but it it's, makes sense when you think about it. Well, anyway, there's this party, a raucous party, a birthday party. And um, in the course of that, Herod gets drunk. He is, if shall I say, taken in. Taken in by what is surely a sensuous, lascivious dance of this teenage girl, Salome, that's her name, the daughter of Herodias. That leads to uh, Herod making promises he really can't keep. Herodias, Salome's mama, gets wind of this, takes advantage, seizes on this opportunity, and John is relieved of his head. John's disciples therein bury the body, grieving, and let Jesus know what has happened. In all of this, we learn some, a key thing about Herod Antipas, and that is this. He had a taste for religion. He had a taste for religion. He was spiritually curious at some level. But at best, spiritual things were a hobby and a diversion for him. He never got serious. And this points us, he is a case study of the problem of failing to take spiritual matters seriously. He's taking spiritual matters lightly, very Lightly. And I'm going to come back to that quote that I read earlier as we began the uh, service that from Dan Doriana regarding spiritual themes uh, in, in movies and put there up on the screen. And, and um, we should pay attention to that and we should really be glad for that in many respects. Because when you see themes like that up on, on the, the, the screen, that's a bridge. That's an opportunity to have easy segues of conversation with friends and family and co-workers about significant things. So we should... Lay hold of that and be glad for that, but at the same time recognize the limits of that. Having spiritual conversation, late night uh, dialogue over pizza or decaf coffee, um, being spiritually curious, entertaining ideas about God and never embracing the gospel, is taking matters of eternity far too lightly. Far too lightly. Through Again, hear what I'm saying. Through Christ, God has drawn near. God has drawn near. We cannot afford to take spiritual matters lightly with that in mind. Is the problem of that, and now we'll move into the second point because it's so clear, the danger of that, the danger of taking spiritual matters lightly. And again, Herod take, points us, well, cautions us. It's a cautionary tale here as well for two reasons. One, the, the, the tyranny that he is under and then the, the trajectory that he is clearly on. So first, the tyranny. The tyranny he is under. Herod is a slave to his impulses. 
And you're probably thinking, wait, he's a king. How does he get a slave to anything? But just think with me. What do, you, what do we read here? What do we know of this man? He, he is enslaved to his discontentment and his lust. And that's what leads to the unlawful, unbiblical divorce and remarriage. He is a slave. You see it with his drunkenness and his sensuousness in the ill sort of way, and his pride and his hatefulness and his cowardice, which then leads to the murder of John the Baptist. Herod is a slave. He is enslaved to his whims, to his impulses. He is a captive. He is a captive to his ambivalence, his inability to take a stand and do what's right. What we see here, on the one hand, he wants to silence John. He wants to be done with John. But at the same time, he's afraid of John and afraid of the people and what will happen if he does anything, if he strikes against him. He's caught. He's he's stuck. He's ambivalent. The text says here, he's sorry. He's sorry. I'm sorry. You know, when when he gets this request from uh, through Salome from his, his wife, Herodias, who's an interesting lady, kind of like Jezebel, but that's another story. She's something of a successor. Um, He's sorry. Really what that word has nothing to do with repentance at all. It has to do with self-focused regret. He's sorry. He's not repentant. You don't understand the tyranny that Herod is living under. His impulses, his whims, his ambivalence. You know, it's it's interesting. It's terrifying, actually. It's not interesting. Let's just call it for what it is. It's terrifying. One of the penalties for sin, just in this life, is being under control of sin. More of its power in your life. More of its sway in your life. You see that with Herod. I was reminded of that thinking about uh, John Newton. John Newton, some of you may be familiar with him. He was the former slave trader turned pastor, uh, prolific hymn writer as well, though the one he's, of course, best known for is Amazing Grace. Uh, Newton was very much involved in a beautiful way, uh, tirelessly, with William Wilberforce and the British abolitionist movement in the late 18th and early 19th century. And it was interesting, one of the arguments, he realized you know, who he's talking to, right? So he had to be sly in some of his arguments and kind of coming around the back door. And one of the more, most powerful arguments that he made was the, um, the corrupting influence the slave trade had on those involved in it. You understand? Because he can't, really expl- he can't really speak of the dignity of these people and the value of these people who are being treated as other objects. Because that's just going to fall on deaf ears. Right to, to, to a slave-holding society. But if he can come around the back door and hit them in that way, and that got an ear. There's a quote from uh, his, his uh, pamphlet, Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. He said, I know of no method of getting money, not even that of robbing Ford upon the highway, which has so direct a tendency to efface the moral sense, to rob the heart of every gentle and humane disposition, and to harden it like steel, against all impressions of sensibility. 
There's a corrupting power to sin. And Herod was living under its tyranny. No question about it. Um, but then you see something else here. It's not just the, uh, the tyranny, but the trajectory that he is on. Where he's going. Where this is taking him. The Gospels tell us, in fact, that uh, he is involved later on in the travesty of justice regarding Jesus' uh, trial. Because Pilate knows that Herod's, you know, he's in control up in that part of Galilee, and so he's under, Jesus is under uh, Herod's jurisdiction, so he makes, he refers Jesus there. It, he's just part of the mockery of this whole thing, still showing his cowardice and his ambivalence in, in all of this. But it goes, we, we press a little further into his, his history, and what else do we learn about Herod Antipas's trajectory? And here's where Josephus uh, lends some interesting insight. Um, we know that he suffered a, a grave defeat at home just a few years later. You see, okay, so go back to this thing with um, Herodias and the divorce from, and we don't even, I don't think we even know her name, but Herod Antipas's first wife. Her daddy was a guy by the name of Aretas IV, king of Arabia, a bordering country to Herod Antipas. What do you think happens to the diplomatic channels between these two men when you diss this, this man's daughter over here? Diplomacy breaks down. Armies are raised and a war begins. And King Aretas beats King Antipas, well, Herod Antipas. And if it wasn't for the Romans backing Antipas, he would have been overrun. You've got that in the table. Then just a couple of years later, we, we read, uh, we learn that uh, not just of defeat at home, but banishment abroad. Herodias, remember her? Oh, that fine lady? Young men in the room, please, look for a woman like this. Uh, no, uh, Herodias, because she's jealous, wanting more power for her husband. She talks him into this trip to Rome. Oh, this is a great idea. Let's go to Rome. And let's see if you can talk the emperor into giving you yet more power, more realm. You know, the kind of realm, the kind of power your daddy had. Okay, so they go. The plan backfires. Herod ends up not only being stripped of what realm and territory he already had, he ends up being exiled to modern-day France. How's that working for you? The trajectory that he is on. Again, he is a case study of the danger of taking spiritual things lightly. The tyranny under which he lived, the trajectory on which his life was on. And the interesting thing is, no, not interesting, I keep using that word, terrifying. The frightening thing is, one of the things that you see in the Scriptures is this, a theme that comes out again and again and again, that suffering for sin in this life oftentimes is meant in the hands of God as a foretaste of what we deserve, what outside of His grace awaits, and a warning. A warning. Not of an exile to the outer reaches of an earthly empire, but an exile, a banishment from the presence of the Lord of life Himself for all eternity. Through Christ, God has drawn near. Oh, we must not then take spiritual things lightly. Herod is our case study here. Now, is there any hope? Absolutely there's hope. 
For even as surely as there's the problem of taking spiritual things lightly and the danger of taking spiritual things lightly, by God's grace there is a cure as well, and it is this. Just what I said two weeks ago, verbatim, in looking at the people of Nazareth and their ambivalence and presumption, the cure here is to look to the cross. The cure here, absolutely positively, is to look to the cross. What happened there inside the walls of Machaerus points towards what happens outside the walls in Jerusalem. The unjust execution of John prepares us for the unjust execution of Jesus. The cure is to look to the cross. That's where this whole thing is driving us to. Matthew's Gospel. That we would see our sin. Oh, that's part of the cure for our unwillingness, our inability to take spiritual matters seriously. To see our sin, to look to the cross, and there we see its heinousness. There we see God's justice poured out, shown on what what we deserve for our sin. Now, if you were there at the surface level, what would you have seen? You would have seen, well, you probably would have thought to yourself that you were a contemporary of those times. You're like, it's just another brutal execution. It's just another sad example of what this occupying army has inflicted upon us. It's just another sad tale of grand promises and great hopes dashed. And as the followers retreat, just another movement crushed. That's what you would have thought. That's what you would have seen. But there's so much more going on there. So much more going on there. God's eternal plan working itself out and coming to a head in that moment and His forcing us to reckon with this raw, ugly testimony that we have to deal with, and that is, look to the cross, and there you see what your sin, your cosmic treason, deserves. Every one of us. For the Herod Antipasness in us all. That's what we deserve. Look to the cross. There you will see, on the one hand, the heinousness of our sin, and oh, the beauty of our Savior. This is the cure for our taking spiritual things lightly. Those two things wedded together, seeing our sin, seeing our Savior, looking to the cross, seeing Him dying there, not like John is just an an individual in what looks like a ludicrous, senseless death, but rather as our representative, standing in our place, getting what we deserve. His not a tragic death, but a victorious death, an efficacious death. Look to the cross. That is the answer for our taking things lightly. Then you think in terms of why He's done this. Why that cross? Why He's doing this? Why He's standing in our place? In no way because of any indebtedness of Him to us. In no way because of any obligation on his behalf to us. Friends, we, the Bible describes us as enemies. Not even strangers, to say nothing of friends. 
out of His mercy, out of His grace. That's what's happening. Look to the cross. There you'll see your sin dealt with and all of its ugliness dealt with by this beautiful Savior. This beautiful Savior on your behalf. That's the cure. Again, some of you may be thinking at this point, and I sympathize with you if this is what's going through your mind. That's what you said last week, you know, or last time. So is, is this just a case of a one-size-fits-all solution? No. That would be to really, I'm not sure what the word is, be foolish. I'll go with that one. This is merely I, I, something of a repetition, only because of the depth of the cure. It goes so deep. It goes so far into every arena, every aspect of our alienation and estrangement from God. Through Christ, God is drawn near. Oh, we must not then take these things lightly. Think of what we're talking about here. Think of what we're considering here. Think of the significance of what we're saying. Mean, I say, through Christ, God has drawn near. You know, the God that we all stood in amazement of on Monday afternoon. The God whose promises we stood in amazement of a little while ago in the course of that baptism. That God, through Christ, has drawn near. It's so hard for us to get our minds around. It's going to be the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God. The best I can do is give you some images. Maybe it'll help to kind of grab hold of your, our imagination a little bit. I've got three. I'll give them to you in quick succession here. Uh, the first is uh, from Merrill Tenney. It's actually in his uh, commentary on, in the uh, prologue of John's Gospel. This is what uh, he wrote. The nature, uh, I should say it's a biography. This is where he's going with this, this image. Okay. The nature of the invisible and mysterious God is thus interpreted by one who is qualified to do so through kinship and understanding. In biographical writing, a man can best be interpreted to the public by a sympathetic son who has within him the father's nature and who speaks the language of a generation with which the father did not have direct contact. So God through a son who is called God and who is one with the father is interpreted to men who've been alienated from him by sin. Okay, so that's one. That's your biography image as, as a way to envision something of what are we talking about here in the, the amazing reality of the Incarnation. Here's another. C.S. Lewis uh, from his book, Miracles, The Strong Man. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the, the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift it. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. You have the story being written. You have a strong man stooping down. One more. Origin. Third century uh, theologian told of a village. The huge statue. So immense you can't see 
what it's meant to represent, because it's so high. It's going up into the heavens, a statue. And so, somebody finally miniaturizes the statue so that the person that it's meant to honor can be taken in, can be visualized, can be seen. Origen says, this is what God did in his Son. Jesus is the self-miniaturization of God. In Christ, we have God in a comprehensible way. Now, I don't know which one of those nail hit it for you or nail it for you. You've got the story being told, the strong man stooping down. You've got the statue being shrunk down. What do we say to this? What do we say to this? I'm reminded of the words of the author of Hebrews. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Herod's response to Jesus is given to us, is recorded for us, at least partially that we might know what happened, but not just that. That we might take heed. That we might take heed. Through Christ, God has drawn near. We must not take spiritual things lightly. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there are many good things that you have given to us in this world, many things that are right and good to have as hobbies, as uh, occasional pursuits and occupations that you mean for us to explore and even entertain us. But the gospel is not one of them. How can we keep at arm's length the coming of the King who rules over all? We are in awe of timely movements of heavenly bodies casting shadows down upon even this earth. And yet we have to acknowledge that you're the one who hung in the sky with more ease, that sun and that moon, than we hang a picture on a wall. We are far too easily amused, far too easily amazed. You are not a hobby. You are the king. Herod's story was a wreck. And you mean so much more for us. Oh, we ask that you would help us to see, capture our imagination for what it looks like to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. We will now worship.